I'm Bonnie Glazer, Managing Director of the Indo-Pacific Program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Today, we're discussing relations between the Philippines and China and some of the flashpoints in that relationship, especially in the maritime realm. Since taking office in June 2022, President Ferdinand Bangbang Marcos Jr. has pursued a strategy of being a friend to all and an enemy to none. He's tried to maintain close economic ties with China, signing 14 cooperation agreements when he visited Beijing last January, including an updated Belt and Road Initiative memorandum. He secured over $22 billion in investment and trade deals. But the maritime disputes between the Philippines and China are becoming more contentious, and Manila is pushing back against Chinese pressure in new ways. Joining me today to analyze the bilateral relationship, and especially the maritime flashpoints, is Richard Haydarian, who is a columnist at the Philippine Daily Inquirer, a senior lecturer at the University of the Philippines, and a policy advisor. His most recent book is The Indo-Pacific, Trump, China, and the New Global Struggle for Mastery. Welcome to the China Global Podcast, Richard. My pleasure. So let's um, start with a general overview. Uh, give us some context for our conversation. Can you describe how and why relations between the Philippines and China have changed since President Marcos came to power um, 15 months ago? And what are the lessons of the Duterte era for managing Manila's relations with China? Well, this is a upshot of a confluence of factors. Um, on one hand, there is the legacy of the Duterte administration. You know, many were fearing that the legacy would be one of dead trap, as what we saw in Sri Lanka and supposedly also in countries like Malaysia. But instead, what happened is what I call pledge trap. So China offered billions of dollars in big ticket infrastructure investments to Duterte, but throughout his entire six-year term in office, really nothing came in. You know, just a bunch of small projects came here and there, and they were Guess what? Chinese contractors, Chinese workers, questionable logic. Uh, so really, Duterte came out empty-handed after essentially a slavish foreign policy towards China, at least at the level of rhetoric, if you were talking about President Duterte's own statements and pronouncements uh, towards China. Uh, the other one is that President Marcos Jr., just like Duterte, also went to China ahead of Washington, D.C., and ahead of Tokyo which are the two traditional first major destinations for Filipino presidents historically. So he also goes to China and he comes out more or less empty-handed. So it's true that he got more than $22 billion in investment of pledges. But as I half-jokingly said, that's essentially the $24 billion that was promised to Duterte, a little bit rehash and repackaged, minus the $1 billion or so that came in during Duterte's six years in office. So... And, and Marcos Jr. is no fool. I mean, the Marcoses have been in this business for quite some time, to put it mildly. And if you look at the very long joint statement that came out of Marcos Jr.'s very short, I think it was just two-day visit uh, to Beijing earlier this year, there is no concession on any major front. Nothing about the big-ticket infrastructure investments that were promised to Duterte and the ones that were supposed to be resuscitated under Marcos Jr., because Marcus Jr., uh, just a few months into office, actually canceled a number of Chinese railway projects because nothing was happening. And, you know, Marcus wanted to say, I'm not going to take nonsense. Something has to be done about this. But there was no follow through even during his state visit. But more importantly, he got nothing 
in the South China Sea or what in the Philippines we call West Philippine Sea Front. Really nothing except some vague discussions about more communication channels, which we're going to discuss more later on. So that was really a slap on the face of Marcos Jr. And from my understanding, you know, recently I just had a conversation with former Associate Justice uh, Antonio Carpio, who's a very influential figure in the Philippines, played a very important role in our arbitration case against China uh, back during the Aquino administration. He's saying that one of the things that Marcos Jr. was also looking forward to was some sort of clarity on the fate of the untapped but extremely crucial energy resources in the West Philippine Sea, particularly in the Reed Bank area, where we suspect there's a lot of deposit of energy, uh, oil and gas. And the Philippines' main source of its own natural gas, Malampaya, is actually running out very soon. So there's also that ticking time bomb. So Marcus felt, I'm not really getting much out of China. I'm not getting much of respect. Maybe it's time to change, uh, shift gears. Now, the shifting gears was not very difficult for him. And I think this is where there's another side to this. While China can be criticized for not maximizing the six years it had with Duterte and for not really giving Marcus much, despite Marcus' effort to create a new golden era of bilateral relationship, the Biden administration, in a clear real politic fashion, really rolled out the red carpet. In fact, just weeks after Marcus came to office, you had Wendy Sherman, one of the, you know, top persons in the State Department coming in and offering Marcos Jr., guess what? Sovereign immunity. I mean, he reassured essentially him that, I know your family is a little bit notorious, to put it mildly. I know you have a lot of court cases in the United States on some serious charges, but so long as you're the Philippine head of state, you will have sovereign immunity. And of course, I was not surprised because I followed the Narendra Modi case years earlier, because we know the Indian Prime Minister back in the day could not go to the U.S. because of what happened in Gujarat. So, and then you had Biden was apparently the first leader to call him. That's according to Marcos Jr. in his first press conference. And then for the next six, seven months, you had Kamala Harris coming in. Before that, you had Anthony Blinken coming in. And of course, things really reached uh, a, a new milestone when uh, the defense secretary, uh, Lloyd Austin, was in Manila shortly after Marcos Jr.'s fruitless visit to China. And here we have the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Expanded or 2.0 agreement coming to picture. So by February of this year, I think President Marcus Jr. was already decided that we cannot do things the same way that Duterte did it. No matter how nice you are to China, they're not going to respect you. They're just going to take advantage of you. So let's leverage our alliances. And the good thing for Marcos Jr. is that he got far better treatment from a democratic administration in the White House than he expected. Because if you watch him during the presidential elections, you could see that he was genuinely worried how his impending victory was going to be, you know, accepted in the United States. Because the idea is that this is Biden, human rights, democracy summit. I'm a Marcos Jr. We have a lot of unresolved cases. But here we are, thanks to U.S.-China competition. Uh, Marcos Jr. got a very good treatment. And he also had multiple um, conversations with Biden on the silence of the UN General Assembly, uh, also during the APEC summit uh, uh, last year. So really, the ground was was softened uh, for, for this dramatic, dramatic transformation we're seeing in Philippine-U.S. Uh, foreign policy. But as I said, you cannot understand Philippine foreign policy towards China and U.S. without taking into consideration how China and the United States approach to Marcus Jr. So it's a very fluid, triangular dynamic, to put it actually simply, because there's the aspect of Japan, Australia, and other middle powers also playing their important role in making sure the Philippines gets out of the Duterte mode, to put it nicely. 
You mentioned Reed Banks, so let me ask you about that. Um, obviously, this is really closely connected to the Philippines economy. Uh, in 2018, um, Manila and Beijing signed an MOU in which they agreed to jointly work out a, uh, oil and gas exploration at Reed Bank. Um, and as you know, the tribunal ruling in 2016 found that Reed Bank is part of the Philippines' exclusive economic zone and continental shelf. And I remember that uh, Duterte had told Marcos Jr. that the Philippines had to honor this agreement with China or face possible conflict. So Beijing had obviously been threatening him. So um, you mentioned, again, the Malapaya gas field, and that supplies 40% of the energy requirement of Luzon, and it's running out of gas. So the clock is really ticking here. Um, the Chinese Coast Guard vessels um, are preventing Philippine survey ships from operating at Reed Bank. How do you think Marcos Jr. is going to handle this issue? Yeah, this is a very difficult situation. So essentially, you have a ticking bomb there because Malampai is running out and, and the Philippines will face huge energy crisis if we don't deal with that issue. I mean, we already have one of the highest inflation rates in recent history. Uh, living costs in Manila are much more expensive than most ASEAN countries. Uh, and the Philippines' long-term economic growth is really at, uh, in peril here if we don't do something about that. Now, what we have there is a ticking time bomb, but at the same time, we had essentially shotgun pointed at us over the past decade or so. There has been no shortage of effort by the Philippines to get the ball rolling in terms of energy exploration. So more than a decade ago, we were also already trying to contract with a forum uh, company, for instance, among others, foreign companies to help us explore our resources there. But China has been consistently preventing us from doing that. So Duterte thought, maybe let's just split the difference in a very Chinese style, maybe. You know, we, we, in, in, in principle and rhetorically, I'm just going to be nice to you and say, yeah, yeah, maybe you have, you know, you, you can say something about your claims in the area. But this is the important thing with the Duterte administration. Maybe, you know, folks who have followed the Trump administration can also connect to it. The president says something, but his deputies actually were doing different things. So. Remember, the foreign secretary of the Philippines, by the time the negotiations really got serious about the Reed Bank, was uh, Teddy Boy Loxin, right? A very prominent and outspoken, to put it mildly, uh, Filipino journalist, who is actually, despite all of his uh, rhetorical shenanigans on Twitter, uh, among others, quite a traditionally oriented uh, Filipino statesman. He still believes in the fundamentals of Philippine-US alliance, and he is skeptical of China, and he sometimes even used colorful language towards China. And at the same time, also you had the defense secretary like, uh, uh, you know, Delphine Lorenzana, who is, you know, Westbound trained, uh, someone who spent a lot of time in the United States as a defense attaché. So the interesting thing was there was a huge gap between what Duterte says at the level of rhetoric, but actually how things were being negotiated really on the ground. And if you look at the Philippine uh, Department of Foreign Affairs, they were absolutely clear that we cannot have a joint development agreement with China because a joint development agreement by nature violates both our constitution, but also the arbitration award of 2016, which was, of course, instigated by the Philippines. So there's no way that we can recognize China's sovereign claims over the Reed Bank area, which is, you know, because by, by extension, you will be affirming China's nine dash line, the very thing that we do not accept. So apparently, from what I understand, Behind the scenes, the Chinese softened, so they agreed to a so-called service contract. So in a service contract situation, you recognize that the sovereignty is with the host nation, in this case, the Philippines, 
And then we'll ask, let's say, CNPC, Sinopec, Sinop, some Chinese state-owned company, maybe to be involved in the development and exploration of resources in the area. Apparently, there was some sort of understanding that China may agree to a service contract, but not publicly. But towards the end of the Duterte administration, I've been told that the Chinese changed their line. And therefore, you had uh, Luxin, Secretary Luxin, now Ambassador Luxin, now our special envoy to China coming out and say, the negotiations are dead. They're going nowhere. We're not getting any clarity on the part of the Chinese. So that set the tone for the Marcos administration. So the Marcos administration, again, saying in principle, we're okay with working with China, but it has to be service contract because that will violate our, our, our constitution and our arbitration award. And the Chinese said no initially. But now that we're suddenly getting closer to the United States because of the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement, I've been told the Chinese are suddenly saying, okay, maybe we can do service contracts. So they're playing this game of cat and mouse with us while the time is ticking. We only have two years or so to start developing the Reed Bank because you cannot develop it overnight. You have to explore it. You have to develop it, et cetera. So this is a very, very delicate situation for Marcus Jr., there's been three recent developments, and I want to talk about all of them briefly. Um, but before we dig into them, I want to ask you about why Minilis is willing to push back more against China in ways they've re- it, that are unprecedented, um, and and how closely connected this is to a perception that the that the United States really has the Philippines back. So we're talking about, um, or what I want to dig into is about what has happened at Second Thomas Shoal, uh, the recent uh, cutting of the, uh, uh, the, the, the recent cutting of the floating barrier that the Chinese put in place uh, to block Philippine fishermen from fishing at Scarborough Shoal, and then the decision to file cases against uh, China for marine environment destruction. But before we talk about each one of those individually, what's your take on why the Philippines is more willing to push back, stand up to China, even to issue videos of some of these uh, developments that that are taking place, which it has not done in the past? Right. I mean, I mean, I half jokingly said that Marcos Jr.'s foreign policy is like 80% Aquino, 20% Duterte, right? Uh, the Duterte part is more just the rhetorical part uh, because Marcos Jr. personally never directly attacks China and always says nice things about China, etc. The The 80% part about Aquino makes sense because if you look at what Marcos Jr. is doing right now, it's actually a continuation of what uh, Aquino anointed successor would have done in 2016. If an opposition or liberal leader had won in 2016 and not Duterte, I think they would have done what we are doing right now. Because A, the Philippine defense establishment, I've been writing on this over and over again, was never on the same side with Duterte. It's not only American trained, but it's also very Chinese skeptic. So I wrote the New York Times op-ed back in the day, 2017, as early as 2017, saying not Duterte's personal army. And this is an argument that has held very strongly. But the second important element, of course, is public opinion. In the Philippine democracy, public opinion is king, right? Um, Now, Duterte initially was able to work around the public opinion in the Philippines, which is very favorably predisposed towards America and very unfavorably predisposed towards China. He worked around it because surveys in 2017 by Pulse Asia, for instance, showed that a large plurality of Filipinos, when asked, is America a reliable partner which has been helping us in the South China Sea? Actually, many Filipinos were saying, 
you know, I love, I, I love America. I would love to perhaps go there, but I'm not sure they have been very helpful to us. So that gave Duterte some opening to say that I know you like you like US and you don't like China. Let's be realistic. US is unreliable. And Bonnie, of course, you know that up until really um, towards the end of the Trump administration, there was a lot of strategic ambiguity about the, uh, you know, the Philippine-U.S. Mutual Defense Treaty, how applicable it was to the South China Sea dispute, the so-called strategic ambiguity, which for me was more ambiguous than strategic because clearly it did not dissuade China from bullying us right and left. But things changed when Secretary Pompeo came to the Philippines. Uh, I think that was right after the Vietnam Kim Jong-un Trump talk, it was it 2019, right? Uh, and, and said, no, 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 the mutual defense treaty will apply in the South China Sea if the Filipino vessels, uh, Filipino aircrafts, Filipino, uh, you know, uh, soldiers were, we came under attack. So before that, the U.S. had enough ambiguity that gave room for Duterte to work around this public opinion thing. But by 2018, 2019, it was very clear that China is not giving the Philippines much. If anything, militarization got worse. It also... Uh, you know, became quite clear that the Filipino people wanted Duterte to do something about the situation, especially after the incident in 2019, the Reed Bank incident, when a Chinese suspected Chinese militia just rammed into a Filipino fishing vessel and they would have drowned and died if not for illegally, for illegal Vietnamese fisher folks in the area. So thank you to illegal uh, fishing folks from Vietnam. Our, our folks were not killed there. So so, so the United States really makes the most out of it and makes the right pivot. So by 2020, it was really, really difficult, even for Duterte, to continue his pro-China line. So actually, the pivot back to the United States was already starting in 2020, 2021, when Duterte essentially gave up on his threats to the uh, visiting forces agreement. And so Marcos is building on that kind of momentum. So public opinion right now is solidly for stronger cooperation with the United States and Japan and other like-minded countries. And it's solidly for China, net negative. We're talking about net 30 versus positive 70 for US. It's a hundred point divide. So I don't know, how, no matter how much Chinese propaganda or pro-Chinese propaganda is in the Philippines, it's gonna be hard. So, so the defense establishment is a factor. The public opinion is a factor, but the last factor, which I didn't mention a while ago, is the legacy of Marcos Sr. I'm absolutely no fan of Marcos Sr.'s human rights record or his mismanagement of the Philippine economy, the whole email defect history we had there. But remember, it was Marcos Sr. who was at the forefront of building military facilities in the South China in the 1970s, right? And in response to that, Henry Kissinger had to tell Nixon, hey, we shouldn't give the Filipinos carte blanche. They're going to bully everyone and get us into trouble, right? So that's the beginning of the strategic ambiguity, essentially policy of the United States, which continued until the Obama administration. So when you put all of these factors together, the legacy also of the father, that has also guided Marcus Jr. to take a much more balanced and reasonable stance on the South China Sea issue. So let me ask first about what's going on at Second Thomas Scholl, and just to give our listeners, of course, some very brief background. Um, after China Sea's Mr. Reef, um, 1999, the Philippines had beached this old uh, ship. Uh, which is, of course, is, was renamed the BRP Sierra Madre. It was originally a U.S. Navy ship uh, on uh, on this reef, and uh, a small contingent of Marines is now stationed there. And again, uh, the tribunal uh, had ruled in 2016 that it's a low tide feature, so it is located uh, in the Philippines' exclusive economic zone. And uh, about twice a month, uh, the uh, Philippines sends some supplies to these Marines uh, using small civilian vessels uh, 
to provide food, water, um, and other supplies. And we know that this ship is um, in a very tenuous state. Um, it is fragile, and it, it might uh, not be able to remain on its uh, in its position much longer. And I think that's a great concern uh, to uh, to the government in the Philippines. So two questions here. Um, one is, what's the plan if the warship slides off the reef? Um, that's what the Chinese are waiting for. Uh, what's the, the real chance of a, of, of a conflict here? And, and uh, the United States, uh, the last resupply operation was flying a P-8 overhead. I was uh, told by somebody from China that there was a U.S. destroyer off in the distance as well. And um, second question, which is just a very specific one, the Chinese claim that the Philippines has made clear promises, they say, to tow away the warship. Is that true? Right. So as if the Red Bank situation was not bad enough, there's another ticking time bomb. Probably this one has even a shorter fuse, right? Uh, which is that, you know, a rusty, dilapidated Sierra Madre World War II era ship, which was supposed to actually give away a few years ago. So by some miracle, it's still sticking around. Uh, but uh, something has to be done about it. My goodness. I mean, it's like a tetanus uh, visual pollution, scary, uh, you know, sight if, if you look at it. Now, the thing is this. First of all, Everyone is denying that they gave any promise or in, or whatever implied any kind of compromise on this to the to the Chinese. So we don't know who the Chinese are talking about. They never named which administration. The sons of former President Erap Estrada, our first contemporary populist before Duterte, whose father was the one who decided you know to ram this ship there as a kind of a macho way of dealing with the problem. The sons, two of them are senators. Both of said both of them said this is nonsense. Our father would never make a promise like that. He's a macho guy. He's never going to go short on this. The Arroyo administration people, you know, who are supposed to be close to China and close to Duterte, they didn't. They denied it. They said they were never involved in this, even when they were not asked. And neither did Duterte or, or the Aquino administration made any. So we don't know where is this uh, it, understanding supposedly coming from China. And it's quite rich for China to talk about understanding. I mean, they're clearly violating, forget about understanding, an arbitration award in 2016. So, so I, I just find this kind of uh, complete lack of self-awareness by China quite amusing, just to be, just to be nice about this. Um, the other thing is, the question is, what on earth are we going to do about it? Now, we have some overzealous friends, including there in the United States, a lot of them with ties to the U.S. You know, military, among others, are saying, oh, we have to do something about this catch-up time. Let's send Marines and put it there together with the Filipinos over, I don't know what, some new structure. Others are interesting. They say, no, no, we should put an ETCA site in the Tito Island when the Philipp where the Philippines has more permanent structures because it's a real island, right? Uh, or a rock uh, based on international law. Um, honestly, if you talk to people there in the Philippines, uh, we don't like that kind of rhetoric because it, it, it erases the Philippines uh, agency as if we're like a bunch of fourth world banana republic who needs... All Americans to come and say, but no, no, actually, it's pretty basic what needs to be done there. We have the resources for that. And now, um, as you mentioned in your previous question, we have also a more assertive administration, assertive Coast Guard, assertive Navy. We do have a capability. What we need, perhaps, is over the horizon or just over the horizon presence by America to make the Chinese think twice before doing anything stupid. Because let's be absolutely clear, the second Thomas Scholl is a low tide elevation, which is not a territory. So it cannot be claimed by China. 
China has no business whatsoever to make any claim. It's not a contested feature because it's not a territory to be claimed. So the Philippine position is absolutely clear. We'll do something about it as soon as possible. But of course, it's nice if our allies to join patrols in the area and we have over the horizon present by our allies, just in case some in the, in the Chinese side have some funny ideas. So on the issue of the floating barrier, I think it's about a thousand feet, 300 meters where the Chinese uh, put in place this barrier. And um, I saw video uh, of of this barrier that uh, obviously the Philippines just cut it. And I'm really curious how you think the Chinese are going to react to this. We've seen in the past Beijing take uh, economic punitive measures uh, against uh, the Philippines, cutting off Chinese tourists. Uh, they stopped importing uh, Philippine bananas. It, do you think that the Marcos Jr. administration is prepared for a more, a more conflictual relationship with China, where you could have this sort of tit for tat, Philippines continues to stand up for its interests, and the Chinese try to punish the Philippines to ensure um, not only that this doesn't escalate out of control, but also to send a message to other Southeast Asian neighbors, claimants in the South China Sea, um, to uh, accommodate to Chinese interests. We have a very interesting situation right now because I think the Chinese are really scrambling and, and, and they're trying to figure out what on earth is happening in the Philippines. I think they were really caught off guard by the turn of events. And the big reason why, uh, the big reason behind it, this is because I think they got too much used to the Duterte's, having someone easy to deal with in the Philippines. And the problem is the Chinese are still relying on the Duterte's to push their agenda in the Philippines. I'm not saying the Duterte's are, you know, doing the beating of the Chinese, but I think there is a kind of a semi-illusion in China that because former President Duterte is still popular, and that the current vice president is someone named Duterte, who happens to be the daughter of the former president, they can use that as a vector of influence. The reality is Sarah Duterte is a pragmatic person who has her own ambition in 2028. So I don't think she wants to go against public opinion. And as far as the father is concerned, he, he had a perfunctory visit to China earlier this year and met President Xi Jinping as, and, as a kind of self-anointed special envoy. But it became a laughing stock because... Just right after that, the Chinese started doing shenanigans in the South China Sea. And actually, President Marcos Jr., my understanding is, was not very happy about it because it looked like a slap on the face of Marcos Jr. So, so I think the Chinese are still under the illusion that because the Duterte's are still in the political landscape, they could be a vector of influence. And I think they're also relying on operatives in the Philippines who are not necessarily the sharpest people, right? Uh, who are giving them a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of delusional analysis of where Filipinos stand on issues. I mean, of course, America and the West have had historical problems in the Philippines. Of course, there's a lot of things that we can improve with our alliance with the United States, but that doesn't mean that Filipino people are just going to be okay with us bending over and giving in as far as the South China Sea uh, the, uh, disputes are, are concerned. Now, um, the, the, the thing we also have to keep in mind here is that I, I, I think that the Chinese are really trying to figure out, the more reasonable people in China are trying to figure out what can we really do here? Because now the United States is more invested in the Philippines with the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement, with the Philippines being more relevant to the Taiwan issue. And the Filipino people and the Philippine defense establishment are also 
catching up for all those six years of subservience or semi-subservience uh, or softness, soft peddling that we had also in the South China Sea. So, so I, I think the Chinese are still looking at what 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 levers of influence we can use aside from you know some of our old friends in the Philippines to change uh, the facts on the ground or the Philippines' responses. So it remains to be seen. I think uh, the, the deck has been completely reset uh, in the coming months. But threats, I think the Philippines should be prepared for cyber attacks, not only for economic sanctions. The Philippines has to be ready for all sorts of gray zone uh, countermeasures and punishment by China. But that, that's also precisely why Bongo Marcos was in the Pentagon earlier this year. What do you think they discussed? They discussed precisely how to respond if China pushes the button. So we Filipinos are not just sitting idly and waiting for the Chinese to do something. We have been already preparing for contingencies in tandem and cooperation with our allies and friends. Let me ask you just briefly about Taiwan. Um, the three of the new bases, the EDCA bases that the, that the Philippines has given the U.S. access to, face north towards Taiwan. And President Marcos apparently said that the United States would not be permitted to use the bases in any offensive action against another country, which I gathered the Chinese found somewhat reassuring, uh, even though they probably don't count on it. But how concerned is the Philippines about a conflict in the Taiwan Strait? And how should Marcos' statement be interpreted? Yeah, so I think President Marcos is trying to have the cake and eat it too, right? Um, so on one hand, he, he wants to get the maximum possible assistance from the United States, maximum possible assurance. But at the same time, you know, he wants kind of a, what I call Goldilocks Edka, right? You know, not too cold to be irrelevant to the Philippines' deterrence capability, but not too hot to openly provoke the Chinese. Now, if you look at the bases uh, that are being offered in the north of the Philippines, you know, they're not like subic-sized bases. I mean, we're not talking about massive military bases. Uh, and, and, and some of these actually bases are also facing the Philippine Sea, where the Chinese second island chain is. So it's also about our own ISR needs, uh, our own domain awareness needs, and HADR needs in that part of the world. Now, of course, there are some in the Philippines who perhaps semi-disingenuously say it has absolutely nothing to do with Taiwan. But the reality is that it has to do with something with Taiwan. But how far are we willing to go on the Taiwan question? That is something still unresolved. And I think we're still debating about that in the Philippines. Because, you see, it, it, it matters how large will be the American military presence in those spaces in the north. What weapon systems will, be, will they be allowed to preposition there? And if this is going to be pushed even further, because we have other bases which are even closer to Taiwan, like in Mavulis, which is just over 100 nautical miles from Taiwan's shores. I'm even hearing discussions, I just came from Taiwan a few weeks ago, uh, whereby there are discussions that Taiwan may want to park some of their aircrafts just in case they get invaded in northern Philippine bases. So a lot of proposals are being you know, uh, tossed out there. But I think Marcos Jr. is still trying to find just the perfect kind of ETCA, which helps us to be able to prepare for any contingency, but not to put us at the forefront of any Taiwan contingency. Can he get that kind of balance? My sense is it's a more operational military question than a strategic question, and I'm not competent enough to answer that. So actually now I'm talking to a lot of military people to say, when can we say we have crossed the threshold from the Chinese perspective and also from an objective perspective? So I'll, I'll wait for more details perhaps on the operational side before I can make a final statement. But this is uh, just to end on this point. 
Manila is closer to Taipei than any major ASEAN capital. That just tells you how important Taiwan, Taiwan is. And if Taiwan is occupied, we will have China as our immediate neighbor. That is unacceptable also for us. So it's a very, very difficult balancing act also. Now, you, I think we're all beginning to feel for Marcus Jr. I don't think he knew what he was applying for when he ran for office. It's a mess. This is a very difficult strategic question for him. <laughs> all right. We've been talking with Richard Hadarian, who is a columnist at the Philippine Daily Inquirer um, and a senior lecturer at the University of the Philippines. Thanks so much for joining us, Richard. Pleasure as always. 